0: And welcome to When We Were Young, where we dive deep into the pop culture artifacts of yesteryear and see how they hold up today. I am Seth Pearson, the host most likely to swell with God as my witness. I will never pick up another man in a library on a Saturday unless he's cute and drives a nice car. Amen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to suggest we all go into the kitchen for some late-night cheesecake.
2: And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to have a friend who throws a party and invites every single person he knows for the sole reason of producing the biggest gift is a fuck you to all his other friends. (laughs) Today we're revisiting a little show called The Golden Girls. Starring Betty
0: White, B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty, this NBC sitcom began in 1985 and ran for seven seasons. The show was a huge hit at the time and won countless awards for the show itself, and especially for the four amazingly accomplished female leads. And it has since become an ongoing hit in syndication and on video and DVD, and now has a huge audience in the LGBTQ community as well. Golden Girls was also a culturally revolutionary show that brought the trials and joys of the lives of retired women of a certain age into primetime television comedy. And the writers and the show's creator, Susan Harris, used this frame of a story about spry octogenarians to discuss important social issues well ahead of their mainstream popularity, including gay rights, issues of race, gender issues, and not to mention the show's ongoing frank discussions of aging and death and sex.
1: In that order. (laughs) In that particular order,
0: depending on which character we're talking about. Yeah. Before we dive into the history of the show and the episodes that we watched in preparation for this, I want to ask you both, Chris and Becky, your own personal history with the Golden Girls, if any.
2: I feel like I was always aware of this show more than I ever really watched it. Like I don't remember a time when I wasn't aware of the Golden Girls, but it always felt like an old show. I mean, I think as a kid, it wasn't particularly appealing, because it, you know, was about old ladies. And as a child, I don't know if I even watched the show, but nothing about the aesthetic of it, like, said, like, ooh, gotta check this out. I was shocked when we were going back to this for the podcast to learn that this was still on in the 90s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) almost definitely. (laughs) It, at one point, aired, like, in the same time as Home Improvement. Like to me those are two completely different eras and I'm i i am still having a hard time imagining a universe where Golden Girls it's like the circle of life Golden Girls is sinking ben- behind <laughs> the hills and Home Improvement is rising <laughs> but I mean apparently that is but I just I have no memory of it being a live show to me even like I think I was vaguely aware that it was like an 80s show but to me it always felt kind of like a Nick at Night kind of show. Like, a, a show that had been, like, over and done long before I ever became aware of it. Like I said, I don't remember ever watching it. I think I'm I'm sure it was on. Like, I knew I would look at it and be like, that's a Golden Girls episode. But I don't think I had any sense of what this show was. Or that, like, it would be funny in the way that the Golden Girls is funny. Which is very, maybe not what you might expect from looking at a show about four old women just, like, on its face. In the years since, I did catch some episodes of it and was always surprised to find that it was a lot saucier than I remembered or that I had assumed when I was a kid. Like, at a certain point, I was just like, oh, like, I guess even though this show is about four old women and that's not inherently interesting to me, in fact, it sounds boring, like, actually, like, wh- the content of the show is appealing to me. And I became aware of it, especially through... uh gay male friends who are quite <laughs> quite fond of this show, and um, so I'd occasionally, like, it would be on, like, when people are hanging out or something. So, I think that's really my only context of it. I had never really, like, dug into the show. I knew that it had a reputation of being kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways, but I had never, like, specifically looked into what those episodes might have been, or what particular issues it was ahead on, other than, like, kind of knowing that there was, like, a gay element that that people liked.
1: So this show was on between 1985 and 1992. Mm -hmm. And kind of in that era, if you're little, you just kind of watch whatever's on TV.
2: Unless it's MASH.
1: (laughs) Unless it's MASH, then run away. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this was a sitcom. I mean, was MASH even a sitcom? Yes. Yes. Oh, it was? I don't know. I've never seen it. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) Much less (laughs) catchy theme song, though.
1: (laughs) Click click (laughs) so golden girls was a hit show and it was on you know nbc primetime it was just something i watched because it was just one of those things where it's like it's popular it kind of was like seinfeld before i actually realized why seinfeld is good or why any of these shows are actually good it was just like that's on that's what people watch
2: it blows my mind that this was on at the same time as seinfeld for like several years
1: (laughs) i don't know it's it's it was you know seinfeld was more um experimental this was kind of more of a standard three camera sitcom with the standard sets and and things like that um well i yeah i watched it and i remember liking it i don't think i had much more of an opinion it was just like that's what everyone talked about the next day and it was just kind of a given in my life i don't think i really thought about it much again until until seth (laughs) 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 um seth for i think it was my 20th birthday party like he for my birthday he gave me golden girls season one on dvd and i never like thought about it and I, it was almost like a random gift because, like, <laughs> I never expressed like that I wanted that. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but I'm glad that you gave it to me because I remember I started watching it and I was like, oh, what? Like this was surprising. Like I haven't watched this in a couple years, and and I found it really amusing. I remember maybe I was sick or or something, and I just put like play all, you know, yeah, and and yeah. watched the whole DVD. And I haven't. Really thought about it again until we decided to do this podcast.
2: So basically I need to get Seth a Spice Girls CD <laughs> to complete this trilogy. <laughs> For our girls, girls, girls trilogy. This is the last episode of that. Our circle of girls. Well, our circle should have started with me giving Seth a Spice Girls CD long ago. <laughs> because then Becky gave me a Show Girls DVD. And then Seth gave me. Becky a Golden Girls. DVD. We so. like to give each other girls.
1: <laughs> this is a very strange uh, short story by O. Henry. <laughs> it really is.
0: <laughs> Yeah. I love that we've like completed this circle of girls. So next birthday, prepare. <laughs> I'll be psychologically ready, but not physically ready. Stop
1: right now. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> mm, thank you very much, but no thank For you. For being very a much. friend. <laughs> um, well, my history with the Golden Girls is as I've explained in many shapes and forms throughout the history of this podcast, I was raised in large part by television. <laughs> I would watch TV coming home from school, I would watch TV at school, I would be in childcare after school to wait for my parents' work to end so they could come pick me up and bring me home. If I had friends who were around at the time, I would hang out with them. But if I didn't, I would just go watch TV, and they would always have a TV on. Cartoons on in the early afternoon, but then there would be Golden Girls and other sitcoms. So I know that I watched Golden Girls episodes both on their original release and when they started getting syndicated, because the show was such a big hit that it quickly went into syndication. I know that I would see, like, those early afternoon Golden Girls reruns very often, um, so I kind of was lucky enough to watch a whole lot of this show, if not most of it, back when I was just a kid, and it was one of those things that I always really, really liked and really found funny, and only later when I developed a more advanced sense of humor and interest in comedy did I really realize like what a high-quality,
2: high-caliber and pedigree of show this actually was— I'm just wondering what appealed to you as a kid about this show. Because I was so, like, old lady is like, blah. Like, that's got nothing to do with me. Like, a lot of the humor is, like, sexual or, like, specific to aging. Like, I didn't latch onto it. So I'm just wondering what it was that you found in it back then.
0: That's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do with the way I related to my grandmothers. I related to my grandmothers in a very playful, silly way. Not just because I was, like, an only child, so I was, like, really babied by them and really spoiled a lot, appropriately. appropriately. Um, but but I just really had a great, like, relationship with each of my grandmothers and loved nothing more than to make them laugh and to laugh with them. Um, and And so, yeah, I feel like... I feel like at least part of my, like, getting into the concept of it as a show was from that, from, like, having senior citizen, uh, having older women in my life, def- like, specifically older women, um, who I learned a lot from and really looked up to and
2: who taught me a lot. That's really interesting, actually. That's very touching.
0: So I want to go briefly into the history of the Golden Girls and its creators. So let's start with the like very kernel of the idea for the Golden Girls, because this is a unique show in a lot of ways, but the origins are just especially straightforward and random. The idea for the Golden Girls began in May of 1984 as a joke in a skit put on by actresses who were pitching NBC's new fall lineup to advertisers... <laughs> At this event that's called the Upfronts, the Television Advertising Convention. Those happen every year in May. TV networks will pitch their new shows for the upcoming fall season to get advertisers to buy airtime in those programs. This joke involved somebody who was an older woman mishearing the name of the show Miami Vice as Miami Nice. And them imagining Mm -hmm. that that Miami Nice was a show about a bunch of old people in Miami playing Pinochle.
2: God. And the skit starred Doris Roberts Right,
0: and it was funny, like, Doris Roberts was on one of the NBC shows at the time yeah. And they put the talent who were in their new lineup, it, like, into these skits to kind of show off that they have talented people
2: It's kind of a wonder they didn't just cast her in the show I know, it was, was
0: really Was she surprising. old back
1: then? <laughs>
2: I assume. Yeah, she had to be. I think she was born old.
1: Well, she was always old. Her, Her old. name is Doris. Come on. Honestly.
0: Her and Wilfred
1: Brimley were just born
0: <laughs> old. Wilford Brimley was born with that mustache. <laughs> so from this joke in a skit, an NBC executive named Warren Littlefield enlisted writer-producers Paul Witt and Tony Thomas to produce a show just based on this joke. Then came Susan Harris. The idea came from that one joke, but Golden Girls was created and made real thanks to the pilot script and the mind of Susan Harris. She was, in 1984, already a huge sitcom writer, producer, and creator showrunner in her own right. She created the tremendously successful sitcoms Soap, uh, Benson, and uh, also created the shows It Takes Two, Hail to the Chief. And good and evil, and she had also written many episodes on absolute legends of TV comedy like The Partridge Family, All in the Family, Maud, and all those shows that she created. She had been nominated for several Emmys for basically most of these shows at one point or another. Uh, and Susan is married to Paul Witt, who one of the people that got hired enlisted to make this into a show. And Paul Witt basically let Susan completely take the reins and write and develop this idea into a series and that show became the golden girls and it aired on nbc from september 14, 1985 to may 9th 1992 with a total of 180 half-hour episodes spanning seven seasons and interestingly the golden girls joined an nbc lineup at the time that featured the a-team remington Steele. <laughs> Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, Miami Vice, of course, uh, The Cosby Show, and Cheers. Well, I mean, they're all pretty much the same thing, right? (laughs) So I want to share two quotes that I found from Susan Harris that, to me, really contain the essential seeds of this show. Uh, The first quote is from an interview with the New York Times that she did in 1985. Television is always several steps behind life. When do you see passionate older people on television? There is life after 50. People can be attractive, energetic, have romances. When do you see people of this age in bed together? Eventually on this show, you will. It's kind of pathetic that this show is television's baby steps. And then a second quote uh, from an interview with Out Magazine. We liked to tackle not outrageous issues, but important issues. Things that I knew that people went through that hadn't been addressed on television. I think the other truly indispensable element of this whole thing, the chemistry that binds it together, are these actresses who were cast for these roles. So, let's talk about the casting process. I found a really great video clip that we'll share on our page, an interview with Rue McClanahan from the TV Academy Foundation's Archive of American Television. And it's just like a six-minute video, but she very effectively and efficiently lays out the story of kind of how everyone was cast on this show. These actresses were really established actors in their own right. B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan were both on the show Maude, and B. Arthur was the character Maude. So she both starred in that show and was in All in the Family where that character was set up. They had both been nominated or won Emmys by that point and were nationally renowned. Betty White, who played Rose Nyland, has the longest television career of any female entertainer. So, she was already an institution. She came up through not only game shows and, like, guest roles on things. She was one of the first women in comedy to have control both in front of and behind the camera, producing a sitcom even back in the 50s. So, she was really kind of an institution in her own right at the time when the show was being created. And Estelle Getty was mostly known as a theater actress, and she was in the Torch Song trilogy on Broadway that really brought her prominence and helped her cross over into TV acting.
2: One thing that I found that was interesting when I was researching for this was that um they told Susan Harris to go write a show about um older women so she did and then when she like came back to them they were like oh we meant like in their 40s <laughs> oh god like she had to fight for them to be like older women and then the compromise that they ended up making was that they don't really say their age but they're basically just like newly retired you know
1: i think there's one episode where dorothy it might be the pilot or or episode 2 where she says she's Fifty five or fifty six. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: there are a lot of jokes about both what their real ages are and what the fake ages are that they tell everyone. And you notice as you watch episodes of the show throughout later seasons that joking age goes up and up too, <laughs> as does the real ages that they refer
2: to. Yeah, that's actually how I live my life too. So. <laughs> yeah, I can no, totally same relate. It's one of many things I learned from <laughs> this series.
1: I read somewhere as well that because they made Sophia's character. Dorothy's mom, that because they had someone even older, it was then the three other women were more like girls, because they were young compared to somebody on the show. They were
2: hot, sexy young
0: things.
1: (laughs) Comparatively.
2: In the bikini contest (laughs) episode.
0: So I really love this video clip with Rue McClanahan, because she explains in it that originally Betty White was considered for the role of Blanche Devereaux, who is this southern belle and wanton whore. And... (laughs) Rue McClanahan was asked to initially audition for Rose Nyland, who's this doe-eyed, naive moron from Minnesota. From St. Olaf, Minnesota. St. Olaf. But then Jay Sandrich, the director of the pilot, suggested that Betty and Rue switch parts. Um, He felt that Betty would be a better fit for Rose, because Betty had already played the character Sue Ann Nivens on the television show The Mary Tyler Moore Show, which was similar to Blanche Devereaux anyway, so she was already tired of playing that kind of character. Uh, The video is also fantastic because Rue explains how different those actors really were from those characters, but they were such consummate professionals as actresses and had such great chemistry with each other that they kind of fell into these characters even from when they were reading the pilot script together.
2: They're super talented actresses, so I feel like they could make it work, but it's really hard to imagine those roles switched and it just like working the same way.
0: Mm -hmm. It's true. They could have pulled it off. But just the way that each of those actresses inhabits each of those characters adds something essential to each of them and really just elevates what is already really great material.
1: Ru McClanahan really have like a Southern
0: accent, but she has a much lighter Southern accent than she does in the show. She really lays the
1: but she's a Southern. She girl. lays the
0: molasses on thick, but she is a Southern woman, absolutely, okay. absolutely.
1: I'm trying to picture Betty White doing that like Southern thing. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, again, like I'm sure she could do it, but it's also like I don't want to picture anything but what we got. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was
0: funny because in the video, Rue says that Rue McClanahan says she actually wanted to play Blanche the whole time and learned the entire part by heart, but then, like, wanted it to be the executive's idea to, like, oh, switch up the role, and she was like, okay, I guess I'll try that, maybe.
2: That's so Blanche. Like, Blanche would <laughs> absolutely do that. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Rima McClanahan totally Blanched that audition. <laughs> in the best way. Golden Girls was a ratings juggernaut, getting 25 million viewers on its first episode, and staying in the top 10 shows in primetime each week That said, it was often overshadowed by Roseanne and by Seinfeld once those shows premiered in 1988 and 1989, respectively. The critical reviews were pretty unanimously positive, all highlighting both the cast and the writing for specific praise, especially among the other primetime comedy offerings at the time.
2: It also aired on Saturday nights, which is interesting because you would never have anything premiere on a Saturday night now. But, like that was a viable night back then, and because it was catering to an older audience, I think that they you know you don 't you don 't ca- put a like hot young show on Saturday night because young people are going to be out and uh i't it just felt like a very good home for the golden girls yeah i i mean it's it's funny at every
0: level how. This is both like an obviously smart set of business choices for a network to invest in, but also organically a really good concept and kernel of an idea done really, really well. Um, So from this critical success and its popularity, the Golden Girls won, numerically, a shit ton of awards. (laughs) I won't name them all individually with categories and years and all that, but they won Writers Guild Awards for the writing, Golden Globes, and Emmys for Best TV Comedy over several years. And each of the Golden Girls won Emmys for their performances on that show.
2: Yeah, that's really, really rare. It is so for rare! a show where every single lead has an Emmy, and they all won them at mostly different times. It was Betty White was first, then Rue McClanahan in the second season, and then Bea Arthur finally won for the third season. All of them were Best Actress, which is interesting, because I could definitely see at least two or maybe three of them being considered supporting actresses, but they were all considered leads, and then Estelle Getty was um, also won in the third season for as supporting actress.
1: I think um, the... I want to say there's maybe two uh, two other shows that have done that, but the only one I can remember is Will and Grace. Each person yeah. won an Emmy.
2: Uh, All in the Family and The Simpsons are the other two.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Overall, Golden Girls won 68 nominations from the Emmys and 11 <laughs> wins, so that's... Pretty impressive.
0: (laughs) Yeah, not a shitty track record there. (laughs) So we watched a series of episodes in preparation in preparation for this recording. Did y'all watch any additional episodes beyond that?
1: I have season one on DVD. Thanks, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So I think I put on like maybe two discs of that. Mm -hmm. um, I just let it play.
2: Ask me the question again. (laughs) Did you watch additional Golden Girls episodes beyond? Boy, did I. Uh, Yeah, so for those who may not know me personally We might have listeners who don't (laughs) You know me? (laughs) (laughs) I work in um, advertising technology So I'm a very cutting-edge kind of person And for the purposes of this podcast I often use such cutting-edge media viewing techniques As renting DVDs from the public library Thanks, LA Public Library Yeah So I have to rent a lot of things that I'm moderately embarrassed about uh, For this podcast (laughs) Uh, Spice World or Jonathan Taylor Thomas movies (laughs) being some examples, but the library has this very handy uh, self-checkout system where, like, you order the DVDs, they're on a shelf for you, and then you check them out yourself and slip them into your bag. And you don't have to be seen doing it. (laughs) Exactly. And so, like, this system really works for me. (laughs) For the Golden Girls DVDs, this backfired twice. (laughs) The first time was when I was returning my first batch of 10 Golden Girls DVDs. (laughs) (laughs) I showed up to the book drop right as the guy was taking the stuff out of it. So I would have been a real asshole to like go in and like dump in like 10 new DVDs after he had just emptied it. So I was like, oh, here you go. Like I was just kind of embarrassed because I had like. Not, like, one Golden Girls DVD. I had ten. A gaggle. Yeah. Like, multiple seasons, multiple <laughs> colors. So I handed them over, like, kind of sheepishly and was trying not to let him see it. And then he started being like, oh, my God, the Golden Girls. Like, this is the best. Like, and I was like, oh, yeah, really? Like, you know, I was kind of trying to downplay it. And I was like, "I was like, should I tell him I have a podcast? So I was like, D- don't get into that right now. And just be like, yes, I enjoy the Golden Girls. Here are the DVDs. Or you can take them now
1: but like, It would have been funnier if you were like This was the worst show I've ever seen You have like 10 DVDs worth of it
2: <laughs> All 100 hours And I didn't enjoy a single one <laughs> I kept looking for something redeeming Then um, A few days later I went in for my next batch of 10 Golden Girls DVDs <laughs> The system was down, so you could not self-check out. So I had to go to the front desk with my 10 Golden Girls DVDs, and she had to handwrite the serial number for each of them on a piece of paper. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I was like, oh, maybe I could just like, put some of them back or something. And she was like, oh, my God, the Golden Girls. <laughs> and this took forever because she was r- handwriting all these numbers. And so we had like had time to like discuss the show and be like, yeah, it was really ahead of its time and this and that and so like I just realized like that there's so much goodwill for this show out yes. there like this these DVDs like made me new friends
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you should have been embarrassed by it it wasn't like you're renting yeah. home improvement There's no shame in that like... at
2: all this is no Huck and Finn or <laughs> Tom
1: <That's laughs> right. and Huck please. or
2: Tom and Huck and Finn that's what I <laughs> learned from this experience is that <laughs> I was just like this is a very gay thing to be <laughs> renting like Wait,
1: is this library in West Hollywood yes then so what are you
2: also what are you surprised about
1: you can rank gay porn from the library (laughs) no one's gonna like i
2: don't think that's true
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just like I have
2: my pride and like I like to like you know keep my private things that I watch private. So,
1: but what did your roommate think of you watching Gold- Golden Girls episodes over and over? Um,
2: he was probably annoyed by this theme song as well. It's not, I, it's not quite as intrusive as the Fresh Prince theme song. So, I did try and watch it like when he was away so that I wouldn't seem like a crazy person. But um, no, I did watch a bunch of episodes. But I did luckily start. A couple months ago, so that they were spaced out properly, because I found Good. that binging old shows doesn't work very well because they're just not, they weren't made to be watched back to back. It was supposed to be a weekly thing. That's mostly how I watched it, is I would watch one or maybe two at the most episodes every couple of days and then, you know, take a break.
1: To I disagree. I really liked watching, I liked binging on these episodes because when I'm in the Golden Girls mood, I'm in the Golden Girls mood. <laughs> like, I was in a Golden Girls mood, you know. Watching the pilot on And like I feel like Three weeks from now I may not be in a Golden Girls mood So it's like good I want to like Get it all in For some reason Like I did only Gotta catch all. I did only listen to the <laughs> uh, Theme song maybe twice And then I was like Okay I'm gonna fast forward
0: <laughs> Yeah I mean I, I mostly agreed On the skippability Of the theme song Past a certain point But I still do think It's a pretty It's pretty good As far as theme songs go It is very catchy It's very catchy
2: Um
1: I've been singing it all week.
2: I did not skip the theme song. Not even once. (laughs) And I got to the point where I was biting my fist along with Dorothy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, like, it wasn't just the theme song. It was interesting watching um, just a sitcom. um, Mm -hmm. Because usually shows today don't have the same stings in the same places. So, like, the, the very... When you see the exterior of the house, which is always the first shot of the episode... And it's just like, yeah, like that. Uh, (laughs) Replace that with
2: cutting in
0: the actual music, please. Nope. Nope. (laughs) This is our song.
1: But that was like tied into the theme song. Like that was part of the theme song for me because it was every single episode was the same sting. Yeah.
2: It's I mean, I feel like a lot of shows do that, but it's like I feel like they'll skip it sometimes. I really think it was every single episode of this show. And that. Like that almost became more of the theme song than anything to me is like totally. I almost insist that it just doesn't feel right to yeah. talk about the Golden Girls without that preceding it. Literally
1: sure. the exterior of that house and that and that music mm. cue.
0: So, let's talk a bit about our overall impressions of watching The Golden Girls now. Um, I mean, just for my own sake, I, I found it just as enjoyable, if not more so, watching it now. I feel like I connect more with the actual specific experiences they're going through. Not that I'm retired, not that I'm a woman, but it, these are characters who have very much lived lives before this show started. Um, And they really do carry that into everything they do. Um, And so I really, this time around, appreciated the kind of depth of the characterization, not just how funny the performances are, but how heartfelt they are.
1: I felt like watching the show again was like, the show is popcorn, where you just eat it and you eat it and it goes in and it tastes good and you kind of turn your mind off and you're just like happy. (laughs) and that's how it felt binging this show uh watching you know 20 minute 20 22 minute episodes over and over i was just like very delighted watching these episodes i thought it was it was just interesting to watch it as an adult where i'm like why did i watch this when i was younger (laughs) like it really must have just been it was on tv (laughs) um but it there's no reason that seven-year-old little girl (laughs) who has no you know personal experience with i didn't know my grandma's you know um why would i watch this show and it's it's just funny that how that uh, america watched this show like the world watched this show and it's because the performances are so good and the writing is so good like you can make a show about anything about anybody no matter you know their age or their race or their gender and if the writing is good and the performances are good People will tune in, um, and I just—I was just so happy watching it. I was actually really sad when <laughs> when I ran out of episodes to watch, because um, at some point I had to stop. I had to go on with my life.
2: Would you like to borrow some DVDs <laughs> from
1: the library? I felt like it was really interesting to watch the show as an adult. So I was a little just more aware of what of you know the good things and not so bad things, but just interesting observations. Like the show felt very much. At the time, for a very white, straight audience of a certain, you know, affluence. We'll get into it when we get into certain episodes, but it did feel like this is for white, straight people.
0: On the kind of empirical side, like, the mainstream in America was white and straight and yeah. it was much, it was a much wider mainstream audience. Whiter mainstream yeah. audience. And, whiter, whiter and audience. And I'm not yes. criticizing the show.
1: <laughs> I think that it just made me think at the time, everything on TV, with maybe the exception of The Fresh Prince when it came on, or The Cosby Show, or maybe like Good Times in the 70s. You know, like, with the, with very few exceptions, TV was made for a certain type of audience and if there were ever any like social issues brought up like gay people or race you know that's covered in a lot of these episodes it was so it was from the white person's perspective even if it was like um an engaging like you know don't be racist or don't be homophobic kind of viewpoint it was still trying to teach white people to not be homophobic versus like why is this even a thing like L-
0: because it because it was a
3: thing <laughs> right like, <laughs> like it's, that's...
1: it just it just it, it was very uh striking to me that like when i was looking at who they were making the show for um but overall i really really enjoyed watching it and i think it totally holds up as far as like great writing and performances
2: Yeah, I mean, even I think the shows that you mentioned, like Fresh Prince, that might have been sort of pitched to a different audience, still had a very much appeal to a straight white audience. Exactly. No matter what. Like, they just wouldn't have been on otherwise.
0: That's a really important, like, point of context for it. I think this will come out more in the individual episodes, but I think the kind of uh, mainstreamness of this as a concept for show and the mainstreamness of old retired white ladies as characters like that kind of whiteness of that is used to make the show kind of more subversive in the issues that it talks about and in the approach that it ultimately has toward those issues
4: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah my reaction to the show i mean in a way i'm disappointed that i wasn't like, more surprised by something. But I just kind of expected to like it, and I did. (laughs) So.
1: (laughs) You're disappointed that you didn't feel something different. (laughs) I wanted to be
2: outraged or, (laughs) I don't know, blown away by something. But no, I mean, this was basically the show I was expecting. More episodes went to more places than I was expecting. And I think there are... A few, like, kind of surprising things I noted, like, around the fringes. But, in general, I think this show has the reputation that it deserves, which is that, like, everyone kind of likes it. Like, like, you run into people at the library, they like it. Like, I, <laughs> I'm sure that there are people who don't like the Golden Girls, but I don't think I've ever met anyone who's like, oh, the Golden Girls. Like, it's kind of hard not to like it. It's so likable.
0: So, the first episode, the pilot episode, was called The Engagement. It aired again on uh, September 14th, 1985, and I thought it just very effectively sets up the basic pitch of the story where Dorothy, Rose, and Blanche are three women who share a house in Miami, Florida. Uh, Dorothy's elderly mother, Sophia, unexpectedly moves in after her retirement home burns down. And uh, yeah, she has like a stroke
1: a, too, right? Yeah,
2: and she has a stroke. Uh, and the retirement home—what's what, what, it called again?
0: Shady Pines. Oh, yes, I, I
2: think we had to call that out. Shady Pines. <laughs> no,
0: it's very important because there are like constant uh, threats made to Sophia that if she doesn't behave, she'll get sent back to Shady Pines.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's probably mentioned in maybe like half the episodes. I'm I'm just guessing, but like you only actually ever see Shady Pines once. Oh, I don't even remember... (laughs) I don't even remember... Yeah, I didn't watch that episode, but I read that I felt like it was kind
0: of the boogeyman that just constantly got invoked. It was
2: the Godot of the Golden Girls.
0: Yeah, so, like, how did... What did y'all think of the pilot episode, like, as far as the setup for a show that became this successful, and also just as its own pilot?
2: I was actually really surprised that this just jumps right into the story. Like, they've already been living together. Like, there's no, like... A lot of times, like, a show will have, like, three of them live together, but there's one new person, so we can talk about, you know, the rules, and, like, those are the popular kids. And...
3: <laughs>
1: does, uh, does Sophia not move in the first episode? Oh,
2: I'm... yeah, she does, but... So she was actually supposed to be a guest star in this episode, and she just worked so well that they had her stay along, but, yeah, I guess that is kind of a thing, but it, does, it just doesn't feel that way, because it just feels like the chemistry is all there. Like, we've talked about a lot of shows where the pilot was rough like even <laughs> seinfeld fresh yeah. Prince. like there was a lot of like bumpy takeoffs and this show like i mean you can't tell that this is the first episode whatsoever i don't think
5: you know i had the shock of my life today i was in the teacher's lounge talking to a group of girls in their 20s oh they were so pretty <clears throat> At that age, you don't even have to be pretty and you're pretty. (laughs) Anyway, we were laughing and giggling and having a great time and I completely forgot that I was older. You know, I just felt like one of the girls and we had a wonderful time. And then I got into my car and caught a glimpse of myself and I almost had a heart attack. This old woman was in the mirror. I didn't even recognize her.
3: (sighs) Who was it? (laughs)
5: It was me!
1: Oh. <laughs> no, like, I thought that the characters were right there from the beginning. Like, right from the get-go, everyone knew their character. The, the writing was, you know, the same as it was in season seven. Like, right from the start.
2: Yeah, I think this is a very consistent show. Like, there are worse episodes and better episodes, but they don't feel that uh, far apart from each other. And, like... Even if an episode isn't, like, a great episode, it feels like it's still the same world. It feels like it has the same voice. Like, it's, it's not wildly different. Like, sometimes you watch a show and you're just like, whoa, that was not an episode of that show. <laughs> like, I don't know who wrote that. But this one just really, like, has this sense of identity that I think is incredibly rare. Especially for, like, shows back then when they typically did have to take some time to, you know, get, get themselves going.
6: Oh, Rose, I'm borrowing your earrings. Lord, I'd love to get a facelift by 8 o'clock.
5: Blanche, who is Harry? Oh,
6: girls, he's just wonderful. He's, He's very gallant. He's a perfect gentleman. He's a great dancer. And he doesn't make noises when he chews.
5: Chewing, that's way up there on my list. Comes right after intelligent.
6: He doesn't talk loud at the movies, doesn't take his own pulse, and
5: he's still interested. In what? Rose, if you have to ask, it does not matter anymore.
1: I think it's funny you said that, because of all of the episodes I watched, I don't think any of them were bad, and every episode, even if some of it didn't draw me in as much as others, there is always, like, some great dialogue.
0: And there's, like, for me, it's like, even if if all else fails, there's gonna be a great rose line. <laughs> like, she'll tell some story about St. Olaf and save it, or Sophia will have a one-liner and just totally kill. Or Blanche will say or something Blanche. <laughs> or say, so, like, well, Usually, like, again. all of
2: those things. Like, even the bad episodes have great dialogue.
0: Exactly, and they're such consummate performers that, like, timing wise, they'll nail it and they'll drive it home, like, even if that isn't the most perfect
2: punchline that it could have been. Yeah, it's incredible, actually. Like, I don't think there's a single moment from any one of these four actresses where I didn't buy them in in their Mm -hmm. character. Like, they were always exactly who they were supposed to be. They nailed it every single time. And yeah, they elevated some bad dialogue, like, or not not necessarily bad, but just average dialogue. Like, they really sold it, like, every single time.
0: Well, and I think another part of this process is, like, the makeup that was involved and how they were kind of rendered to be the ages that they are on the show. It premiered on September 14th, 1985, and at that time, B. Arthur, playing Dorothy, and Rose Betty White were 63. Rue McClanahan, Blanche, was 51, and Estelle Getty, as Sophia, was 62. So yeah, she was actually younger than her daughter.
1: Wait, what? I thought she was yeah. a year older.
2: Dorothy's mother was played by an actress younger than Dorothy. I'm actually surprised that Blanche was that much younger than the other ones too because that is kind of one of the jokes of it, but I feel like it's usually played as she's lying. <laughs> but she actually is like a good more than 10 years younger than them. So
0: Yeah, and Estelle Getty had to do like a couple hours of makeup to to achieve that look.
1: I think that's really interesting that they were in their early 60s, B. Arthur, Betty White, because I thought they looked that age, and then I think it was the pilot or the second episode, B. Arthur says something about being 55 or 56, and I was like, ooh. I was like, that's kind of a rough... Like, I thought you were in your 60s. You're a
0: rough 56. (laughs) And I felt kind of,
1: like, bad, but now that makes more sense, because she (laughs) literally was in her 60s, and for some reason they aged her down. Why Why don't you just have her in her 60s? Because I think they also say... In the same episode that um, Sophia is in her eighties, and then I was doing the math, and I'm like, that seems weird that she would have a daughter in her thirties. Like back in the day, they kind of had children very early, so I, I, know, I, I felt t- that was kind of like odd that the, the age, the ages that they made them.
2: Hmm. That was probably like the like network note that they didn't want to like have old women, so yeah. they were like, oh, they're fifty, they're hot and
5: sexy. <laughs>
0: Well, and there are eventually episodes on the show where they do flashbacks and kind of do origin stories for the things that happened in these women's lives before the series began. Like, we, they go into Sophia's uh, marriage and her life back in Sicily. Um, they talk about... And also, uh, Dorothy's ex-husband is a character sometimes on the show. Um, but I do appreciate in terms of the pilot especially like uh, again it just you can tell that these women have had lives before this um and i feel like so many sitcom characters even on shows that are funny like don't really exist beyond the confines of those like 22 minutes you know that there's really no situations that they, (laughs) they haven't encountered any situations
2: before these yeah, there's a season one episode, I think it's the last episode of the season, called The Way We Met, where it's exactly what it sounds like. It yeah. basically is the pilot episode, but wasn't actually the pilot, where they actually show like how these women all ended up together. And I did really appreciate that episode, just to give me some sense, because it... I feel like it is a little confusing to, like, kind of piece together, like, why these women all live together. Like, none of them seem to be, like, really poor. It's like they could probably live alone if they wanted to in an apartment. So I just, I appreciated the chance to see, like, why these kind of different women got together. And and in my heart, that's the pilot. (laughs) But, like, the pilot itself is good. The only thing that really sticks out from the pilot is that there's an additional character, um, a gay cook that they have who was written out of the show after this episode.
1: It's interesting that he was in there at all. The fact that he was a gay character. I don't think he was a good character, and obviously no one else did either, so they kicked him out. And he was a terrible cook. (laughs) Um, But I don't remember him having much to do in the pilot anyway. He kind of just felt like window dressing anyway.
2: Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of the problem, is that he could come through and do a one-liner or something, but he wasn't really going to be involved in their storylines. I mean, they wanted him to be comic relief, and I think after the first episode, first of all, they had, like, Sophia come in and be, like, the comic relief, but also, like... Any well, one any of them is comic relief. Like...
1: They're all the comic relief. Yeah. They can just tag each other (laughs) in. We need,
2: like, dramatic relief. Like, put in, like... (laughs) (laughs) Someone openly weeping. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was obviously a good choice to take him out. But, like, kudos to them for at least trying something that must have been pretty out there at the time.
0: Yeah. The next episode that I wanted to talk about was Season 1, Episode 13. It's called The Little Romance. And this is one of the early Social Issues episodes, but it's about a very surprising and still very uncommonly discussed issue, which is Little People. Um, There's a character, so the story of this episode is that Rose has been seeing a man from work, and Blanche basically forces Rose to have a dinner date at their house, so that Blanche and all the other girls can meet him. Uh, His name's Dr. Jonathan Newman, and he is a little person. And Blanche is horrible about it for, like, half of one scene, but she immediately checks herself, like, immediately realizes how awful she's being, and is totally ashamed and embarrassed, and corrects herself, like, in the middle of the scene. Which was, like, really surprising, because... Plenty of sitcoms that tackle social issues will have their characters be horrible, like the whole show, you know, like an all in the family Archie Bunker type of thing, or we'll have them be awful for like several episodes and then begrudgingly learn to accept it. And they're usually corrected by someone else. But I thought it was interesting that like Blanche immediately checks herself.
2: Yeah, I think Little People is one of those things. At a certain point, they knew it wasn't cool to like make fun of, you know, certain races or even gay people, like the, you had to be kind of inclusive. But Little People, like that memo came a lot later if it has even necessarily come at all. And Truly. so it was extra surprising to see this show handle it like pretty well and like actually develop this guy into a real character where his like his character wasn't I'm a little person. Like he had a whole personality besides that.
0: Yeah, I think his character is just great, like, for a one-off episode. Like, he has a ton of agency as a character. He jokes about how much he'll be teasing Blanche for kind of getting it wrong at first. Uh, And he talks to them all very openly about his perspective on life and his dreams, uh, and of course, the episode. So the episode then becomes not about his height, uh, but about Rose's uncertainty about her relationship with this guy. Uh, she thinks he's about to propose to her, and she's really unsure whether or not she wants to face that possibility right now. She decides to keep seeing him, and you know, kind of not worry about anyone else's judgment but her own, and just figure it out. Uh, so then, at dinner. Uh, Jonathan, this doctor, reveals that he can't date her because she's not Jewish. Mm. So, the moment of their breakup is actually really sweet uh, and well-written and acted and it has a real sense of regret to it, I thought. Uh, The emotion of it really makes that comedic twist work perfectly, I think. And the last line is just a really classic Rose moment. It's
3: been a difficult relationship
5: for both of us.
3: Oh, it's been a wonderful relationship. I'm gonna miss you.
5: Well, I'm gonna miss you too, Rose. How was the shrimp?
3: <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll never know. You see, he's Jewish, and we can't see each other anymore.
2: So it does like let Rose off the hook, because you know, like a show like wouldn't actually probably have a storyline where she continues dating a little person, which would have been. Like a bolder choice, like it, it's like we're going to see in a lot of these episodes, is that like we've got a social issue, but we're getting rid of it by the end of this episode without making any of our characters look bad.
1: That's like a sitcom thing for sure, though, because they really didn't change much between episodes. Yes.
0: Yeah, and I think it. I I think there are some of those things that arc kind of across multiple episodes and definitely like across seasons and stuff but i think you are right that they do hue to the traditional sitcom convention of like our foibles and our risks are pretty low stakes most of the
2: time like if you didn't like this don't worry because you won't hear a thing about it next week but again yeah that's how tv was back then
1: One of the things I noticed in a lot of these episodes, not just particular ones, but a lot of them, is the use of the word slut (laughs) that is brought out a lot.
0: So I think that's one of those things that, as our language and standards of language have shifted and evolved over time, things that we wouldn't otherwise notice as used a whole lot become very apparent, and that was one of them. Like, on Saturday Night Live, uh, Jane, you ignorant slut, was a line of dialogue that was, like, it cemented in the popular consciousness of America for, like, 25 straight years. Mm-hmm. And now it's, like, really weird to me that that was th- that one line of that one sketch was such a thing.
1: Well, in Golden Girls, it is very directly pointed towards sexuality versus just, like, oh, you're a bitch or you're just a slut. Um, it's, like, in Triangle, which is a uh, season one, episode five episode... Um, Dorothy, like, straight up just calls Blanche a slut. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it
2: was just, just jarring. A slut, a, a, a wanton whore. She um, does that many times. That's yeah. yeah, that no,
0: that it, like... it happens a lot. I, I don't find it jarring because the show is ultimately very sex-positive about these women.
1: It was just jarring they... to hear it in, like, such a casual way totally. on a sitcom towards, you know, a sex-positive person. And coming
0: out of the mouths of... Much older women than you would expect it to come out of the mouths of. Like, I I think, again, like, this, that is both a reflection of kind of our modern perspective on it, but it's also, like, they were very open in talking about the fact that an older woman was promiscuous. Like, even that in and of itself is not a thing that was typically done on sitcoms. Like, older women would be... Assumed to be sexless in most cases, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I totally understand.
1: One of my favorite moments of the many that the word slut gets used, and probably the most I've laughed watching these episodes was in the episode "Ladies of the Evening" when they think they're going to go to some event and see Burt Reynolds, um, <laughs> but they end up going to jail because they are th- are they are thought to be prostitutes <laughs> at some hotel. <laughs>
2: Because they're staying at a hotel that is a brothel, so they are... Or,
1: or known to have a lot of yeah. hookers or something. All right,
5: everybody stay right where they are. The wagons will be here momentarily to transport all of you downtown.
3: Downtown? He means jail.
5: Oh, really, Rose? I thought he meant Neiman Marcus. <laughs> oh, I've never been in
3: jail. I won't make it. They always prey on the weak and innocent. The others will taunt me for trying to excel at my work in the laundry. <laughs> I'll fall in with a bad crowd whose leader looks like Ethel Merman. <laughs> and I'll be forced to engineer a daring prison break using my laundry cart. From that time on, I won't know a moment's peace. <laughs> I'll scar my fingerprints with battery acid and I'll run from town to town taking jobs that people have who've got bad grades in school. And then one day they'll find me holed up in a, in a little shack in the Louisiana Bayou and a sheriff named Bull will call my name out over a megaphone and when I make a run for it he'll riddle my body with bullets. Oh, please don't let them take me downtown. I want to live. I want to live.
5: You're not very good in a crisis, are you, Rose?
1: So, they're thrown in prison. I mean, that's a whole funny thing. And it's just funny, the the name dropping. So, at the time, the the hot, older, but not too old guy, DuJour, was Burt Reynolds. But they were also talking about Dom DeLuise, Lonnie Anderson! <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it was so adorable, because anytime they would say Burt Reynolds' name, all of the Golden Girls would start jumping up and down and squealing like little girls. Yeah. I, w- I thought it was so funny.
2: He was their Jonathan Taylor
1: Thomas. He was. He was their
2: JTT. <laughs> I was.
1: Loved it. And then at the end, Burt Reynolds comes on the show, which makes sense because, you know, you talk about a, a celebrity so much. It's that, usually because yeah. they're going to come yeah, on the gonna show. Yeah, they're going to come on in the show. And then he goes, he turns to Sophie and says, which one's the slut? And all three of them raise their hand and go, I am! <laughs> and I thought that <laughs> I was, like, that the moment. funniest moment and, like, the, you know, the <laughs> credits just roll right after and it was like, oh god, what a great button that was.
0: Oh yeah, I think that's another thing to point out is, like, buttons which are the, the last, last punchline right before you go to the credits. This show was masterful at that. And really, like, those oftentimes are the funniest moments of the episodes and it's that just very last thing where they hit you right before they go out.
6: My God, you're Mr. Burt
3: Reynolds.
5: I hope so, otherwise I got the wrong underwear on. (laughs) He's the roommate you told me about? Yeah. Which one's a slut? Hiya!
2: Yeah, this is a good place to talk about the sex positivity of this show. I read somewhere that Blanche, throughout the course of the series, mentions 165 sexual partners mm. that she's had.
1: Uh, that she's had during the course of the show or, or her in her whole life?
2: That she's mentioned. So there okay. could be more that she has not mentioned. <laughs> yeah, like this episode really cuts to the heart of that and just like her character being promiscuous and that like the women judge her for it, but in a loving kind of way where it's like they're not really judging her. They all have something that they rib each other about and that just happens to be Blanche's thing and like with the word slut and stuff I feel like this show gets away with a lot because it's about older women and because the word slut like it's not sexy in this show you know like there's no actual like sex or there's no like danger that you're gonna get like turned on really by the golden girls unless you're like really into that <laughs> You could are be an people, older
1: person watching the show.
2: It's still not a particular... It's not Showgirls. It's golden Girls. <laughs> Actually, this is sexier than Showgirls.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Rescinded. <laughs> uh, but, like, I just... I feel like if these were, like, ca- characters in their 20s, like, even I don't think on Friends, like, they would say slut this often or that they would even get away with it. Like, that was a racy show at times, but I feel like this one gets away with certain things just because it's like oh, they're old ladies, it's fine, like, they, they gotta pass.
0: Well, and also, I wanted, this jogged my memory of, like, the, the word slut has also been kind of reclaimed within activist circles. Uh, there was even a book called The Ethical Slut, and it's kind of about um, non-monogamy in relationships, but also about, like, living a life where you are, having many sexual partners but you treat them honestly and fairly and i actually think like as as the character goes like you know blanche is seductive and certainly uses her feminine wiles but i don't really see blanche as lying to any of the men in her life and not really ever fudging or hiding or understating um the facts of what she does and and how and also how much she Honestly enjoys it, and her her partner is enjoying it too. Like it's it's she is very frank about sexuality in a way. I think Chris, you're right that most other female
2: characters and most other things wouldn't get away with. Yeah, she really owns it, and like you know, like they'll they'll call her a slut, and she'll just kind of laugh it off. Like I always find it interesting how positively she reacts to all these like kind of nasty things that the other girls say to her, and You know, I mean, you inevitably kind of can't not compare this to Sex in the City at a certain (laughs) point. But it's like the character of Samantha got like all this like critical attention for being sex positive. But like in a way, like, I don't know, this show feels even more progressive than that because it kind of does it under the radar and without like a lot of like, there's no actual sex in this show, it's just a sitcom. But, like, if you actually look at the things that they're saying and, like, take them seriously, you're like, this is a very, very sexual show.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
2: The next episode I wanted to talk about was
0: season two, episode five, entitled Isn't It Romantic? Uh, And the basic story of that is that Dorothy's lesbian friend, Jean, develops a crush on Rose, uh, who was, of course, too naive to catch on.
1: I thought that Sophia's take on lesbianism in this episode was really refreshing for the time. One of the lines was, uh, some people like cats, some people like dogs. You know, she's basically saying, like, if it's not for you, it's not for you, it's for someone else. I just thought at the time that was a pretty refreshing, you know, way to say it and boil it down to your audience that is mostly white and straight, probably, um, and try to teach them a lesson And, and... a very succinct way.
5: Ah, oh, uh, Blanche, this is my friend Jean. Oh,
6: I'm so glad to finally meet you, Jean. You too, Blanche. Dorothy has told us so much about you. I feel like we're bosom buddies. Ma, not a word.
3: <laughs> we're gonna have
6: so much fun. I know where to find the best restaurants, best nightclubs, the best men, uh, Blanche. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that insensitive of me? Maybe you're not ready for men yet. You don't know the half of it. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I found it also really interesting that this isn't like a coming out episode. I mean, obviously it's an older woman, but she's like a widow. And that's a very rare thing to see for like a gay character at this time. Like, not only is she a lesbian, but she also had a full life with another partner and is now grieving and is in really the same position that all these other women were when they lost their partners. So I found that a really, um, yeah, surprisingly deep portrayal of, of a character that could have been like they could have done the same storyline in a much jokier kind of way
0: oh totally and i feel like they could have done a storyline of gene getting a crush on rose in a very condescending and patronizing way in both directions uh-huh. you know that really wouldn't be fair to rose's character the way that it's done in the episode i think is just genuinely sweet because Rose finds these connections with Gene that are just completely genuine on a friend level. Like they both were, they find out they were both raised on a farm. Like they have a lot of things in common and are really simpatico together. Um, so I feel like their chemistry is totally earned, but also that like the decision again to have an episode with this gay character is really used very well. And I think again, like as we mentioned earlier, like, Uh, representations of queer and just non-straight folks are a
2: big thing running through Golden Girls. Yeah, and I found, like, the dynamic between them to be much more nuanced than, like, pretty much any, like, sitcom. I mean, this isn't exactly a romance, but, I mean, even this show doesn't have a lot of nuance in, like, its individual romances most of the time. But, like, it, it really felt like a, like, I could, I felt like I was watching kind of, like, a drama in, in certain ways. Like, Definitely. I could see this. Like, I really felt for these characters. And I was really glad that they didn't, there were so many shows that would have done, like, her seducing Rose. And, like, doing really, like, cheaper, like, tawdry things to, like. Like, and like being Rose. sexually
1: deviant? Yeah, and, like, yes. Rose
2: being, like, too ditzy to get it. Or, something. like, I could just, I re- could really see, like, this episode being that. And I'm very glad that it wasn't.
1: I wanted to talk about Sisters of the Bride, an episode from season six, and that's the episode where Blanche's brother comes to visit and says he wants to get married to a man and the interesting thing about this is that Blanche already knew that her brother is gay. So this wasn't a coming out episode. Either. Yeah. They actually
2: did a coming out episode before this.
1: Okay. Like another episode. I'm- yeah.
0: But by this time he's here, he's queer and she's not used to it. No.
1: And she says that she like accepts that her brother is gay, but the problem she has is that he wants to get married to a man that he loves, who loves him. And that's where the issue is. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting take on, you know, um, uh homophobia because she seems to think that she's fine with it, but why does she why does he have to like you know share it with the world and yeah. I think that is um and I think that is a viewpoint that a lot of people who would say they're not homophobic even today, still have if they if somebody in their own family is gay, but when they actually start bringing somebody of the same sex to like family dinners, that's when they start having issues,
2: yeah, she has a great line where she's like, "I don't mind him being gay, but does he have to date men?
1: <laughs> yeah, and there's a great line that says, there must be homosexuals who date women. yeah, they're called lesbians. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think that's, that's an instance, and in Blanche is a character in this instance, who really is being challenged in a deeper way. And it is in a much more nuanced way than most sitcom characters would have to deal with. You know, like, you wouldn't talk about, like, an ingrained prejudice like that.
2: Yeah, this show really does occasionally take risks with its characters and make them not exactly unlikable, but they don't immediately do the right thing. And in this episode, I think it's in a way surprising that Blanche would be the one to have this problem, because, I mean, I can see an argument for Rose to be this character or Sophia to be this character— but the fact that it's Blanche the most kind of sexually... Libertine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Promiscuous. That she would be the one. is like, it's this interesting like hypocrisy, kind of, that she's, you know, so... <laughs> Again, like, Samantha from Sex in the City gets called a gay man a lot, and I think Blanche <laughs> is definitely, like, the gay man's proxy of the four of these women, or at least... A lot of gay men's proxy, so the fact that she would be the one to judge it is kind of ironic, but feels true to life, because that's, that is what happens a lot of times, is people will outwardly be okay with something and say, like, yeah, I'm open-minded, but when they actually have to confront it in their own personal lives, and it's, like, actually affecting them, like, that's a whole different attitude that comes out.
3: It's different.
6: We're talking about going out in public. Oh, what are people going to say? Probably nothing we haven't heard before. Oh, okay. I was just telling the girls... We heard what you were telling them, Blanche, and I am truly sorry you feel that way. Will you tell me why you want to put yourself and Doug through this? You know how people can be. And if my own sister can't accept our relationship, what chance would I have with anyone else, right? Right. No. (laughs) No, what I I mean... We get what you mean. Blanche, we don't have to worry about what the world thinks about our relationship. It just doesn't matter because we're there for each other. I'd do anything for Doug, and he'd bend over backwards for me. (laughs)
5: Sometimes I just love
0: to hug my mom. Yeah, so I really loved both what Blanche was challenged with and also, like, how on point uh her brother was like in challenging her about it just at every turn and it's not that episode does not have like an easy perfect resolution of it you know like she ultimately you know goes along with it and you know they they she celebrates their impending wedding um but uh you, you can tell that it's going to take a while for him to f- forgive her and, like, they're going to have to do more work on that relationship with each other to really be on perfect common ground
2: again. Yeah, that was another very not-sitcommy thing, is that, like, it's not all resolved at the end. Like, yes, the conflict is resolved enough for us to end the episode, but, like, it's not just, like, they 100% fix this. It, it feels like it's going to be an ongoing, you know, thing for them to deal with. Uh, there was also, like, an AIDS reference in this episode that kind of surprised me just because this was pretty early on in... Very early, yeah. Um, ...pop culture acknowledging that, especially something that's, like, you know, a mainstream, like, sitcom. Um And just the fact that he was in a monogamous relationship, again, was very surprising to me in retrospect, just because... Like I don't remember seeing anything like that in the '90s. Even like you would see a gay character, but they would always be kind of like a single character or something. And like this, like the because these are older characters, it's interesting. They're at a stage in their life where they're settling down. But it was just like, I mean, I'm I'm just like, where was this to even for see, twenty more years? Yeah,
0: to even see people men in a relationship presented at all is very surprising. Uh, and was definitely ahead of its time.
2: Yeah, and it felt like a very believable relationship between and it, them. They had their own like little jokes and things. In,
0: in a totally non-tragic context. Like, no one got gay bashed. Right, Yeah. Like, that in and of itself was surprising.
1: I just want to shout out the B-plot in this episode that I thought was the funniest, where Rose is, like, vying for... An award from uh, a dead woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's
0: fantastic. <laughs> she is the,
1: M- I mean, I did like the A plot with the brother and everything, but Rose is the MVP of this episode where at the end she thinks she's going to win this volunteer award because <laughs> the woman <laughs> is dead. She died <laughs> in the last year. Her they- only
0: competition's yeah. gone.
1: <laughs> and then she ends up winning <laughs> posthumously. And Rose just stands up and shouts, She's dead. She doesn't need that on her medal. She's on her medal. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of my favorite lines that, that I too. of the of the series. Yeah, <laughs> I think like Laugh too. for
2: Laugh, this was my favorite episode that I watched. It was just like from like start to finish, I found it hilarious. Like and we already talked about the story. The story is really solid and really you know, says something new about these characters and totally like, really and explores e- something challenging. And
0: even that B plot is saying something about Rose and how ridiculously competitive she can be in this very narrow, yeah. narrow way. Because she seems yeah. really so
1: naive and like innocent, but then she has and moments so where nice. she's like flawed and like cutthroat. And cutthroat with a dead woman. Yes, yeah. I love
2: that. And um, yeah, this episode in an episode where Blanche is acting against type, it's interesting that Rose is a little acting against type too. It like makes a nice contrast.
0: Yeah, so in closing about this episode, I have a great quote from Mark Cherry who wrote this episode. Mark Cherry later created the show Desperate Housewives uh, and there are several other writers, Mitch Hurwitz, who wrote on Golden Girls, later created Arrested Development, and also Christopher Lloyd, who co-created the show Modern Family, also got his start. The show, beyond just being this kind of clearinghouse of amazing female comedians at the top of their power and experience, was also really an incubator for TV writing talent that kind of defined the next generation of comedy after the show was
2: gone. Yeah, Tom Whedon, um, Joss Whedon's dad, was also
1: a staff writer. Wow. I feel like... I don't know how many women were on that writing staff. Obviously, the showrunner, right, was a a woman? Susan Harris? Susan Harris, yes. There
2: were at least a couple other women writers, but yeah, it was mostly men.
1: But I wonder, usually when sitcoms about women or women characters are written by men, often they can be written by men who don't know how to write for women. Mm -hmm. Um, What I found interesting about this show is that I wonder, because they were a lot of the writing staff was young men, that a lot of what these women went through weren't just old women problems like they did handle death and alzheimer's and aging and loneliness but they also just sometimes i forgot they were old like sometimes they just had you know went on dates or had problems that had nothing to do with their age or their gender and i thought that was really interesting and i wonder if that was because they had those viewpoints of of young men who wrote about what they know um and it just it was more refreshing. It was less trying to like be like, "hmm, what would an older woman think about every single week, but more about what would people? Well, think and
0: about not it? only that, but the show also had uh, several gay male writers, like Mark Cherry included, and they were, you know hired in part to bring their perspective and experience. Um, so I just wanted to read this quote from Mark Cherry that was from a vulture interview uh the one where blanche's brother brings home a gay cop sisters of the bride was one of his favorite episodes my writing partner and i wrote that one episode we were young writers and we got to say a little something about gay rights and how gay people see themselves it was about two men getting married which is something people at the time didn't talk about and it was a really funny episode that was also the moment in our careers when we figured out we needed to get unlisted phone numbers some homophobic people found my writing partner's phone number in the phone book and left the most hideous hateful messages on his machine
1: yikes
2: yeah this is also a good time to mention there Mark Cherry wrote um an AIDS episode as well where Rose is afraid that she got AIDS from a she gets like a call that she may have um contracted HIV from a blood some kind Blood of transfusion. Yeah. yeah um and so like that was another like pretty daring thing at the time like to to portray AIDS as something that could happen to not just gay people but like t- to like an older woman who's not even like sexually active really or
1: or that it even existed because i think at the time the president wasn't talking about aids like he wasn't acknowledging its existence so the fact that the show is saying all those things about it um is really uh progressive and
2: interestingly Estelle Getty was like a big aids activist because she had a lot of um, performer friends who had died of AIDS. So. Exactly. And Torch Song Trilogy, her role in
0: that was a big part of that as well. So that'll take us to another theme, I think, that runs through the Golden Girls, specifically aging and death. So season three's premiere was called Old Friends. And in this episode, Sophia makes friends with Alvin Newcastle, a man with Alzheimer's played by Joe Seneca. And this is a very touching episode that deals with the complications of making new friendships when you're older, of dealing with aging parents, and of dealing with folks with dementia. I thought Joe Seneca's and Estelle Getty's performances in this are just so poignant, and I really appreciated that this was the first, like, very Sophia-centric episode that I saw on the show.
4: Where have you been? You know what time it is? Nine o'clock. In your dreams, you take the wrong bus again? Never mind, you didn't miss anything. What do you think you're doing? I think I'm crocheting, but to tell you the God's honest truth, I wouldn't swear to it. This is my seat. You're sitting in my seat. Excuse me. I didn't know your 80-year-old butt was so sensitive. (laughs) I sit in this seat every day. You got no right sitting in my seat. Relax. I'm moving. You're always doing this kind of thing. You're never thinking about anybody but yourself. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. I didn't take the wrong bus. That dumbass driver went the wrong way, a different way, and you know it. What the hell's the matter with you? Alvin!
2: Yeah, there are a few episodes about her. I think we'll talk about another one that are stand out because they're a bit darker and kind of confront mortality in this not-a-sitcommy way. It's, it's like a very thoughtful way. And this show, this episode kind of does that. It's not so much about death, but it's just, I mean, it's about, it, in a way it is because it's about losing your mind and losing your personality. And she becomes friends with this guy who at first she thinks is just, like, a cool old guy. She keeps going back there and hanging out with him. And it takes her a while to figure out that this guy doesn't even remember who she is. And that, like, he has, you know, a serious, you know, mental issue. And the way that that unfolds is very... Painful because it's, it's so not played sad. for. I mean, of course, it, it's Golden Girls. It's going to be funny, but it's not played for laughs. Like at the expense of like his Alzheimer's isn't like a joke.
0: Exactly. I just thought it was really beautifully done, and, and I mean, again, like to me, this is where sifio starts to not really feel like a supporting character, but absolutely someone who's integral to the heart of the show. And then the last Sophia-centric episode that I wanted to mention was season five's episode seven. That was called Not Another Monday. Uh, And the plot of this episode is that one of Sophia's longest-time friends decides to kill herself and asks Sophia for help. Um, So back at home, Rose, Dorothy, and Blanche are babysitting a fussy baby with a fever, and they do this really cute version of singing Mr. Sandman to sing (laughs) him to sleep. (laughs) Uh, but Sophia has a heart-to-heart conversation with her friend and convinces her, really convinces her to stay alive.
1: Yeah, that was a really touching episode. I thought it would be more like she needs to give her pills or, or kill her in right. some way, like euthanasia, but it was more like, no, I'm gonna do it, I just want you to be there, so I'm not alone. I mean, it's a complicated issue. She didn't seem to have health issues, she was more like, I don't want it to get worse, so I'm gonna off myself now so the fact that Sophia Sophia has a wonderful I don't know if it's a monologue but she has just a wonderful like run where she's like you know don't I I want to be there for you tomorrow I want to be there for you as a friend like you want me to be there for you when you kill yourself but I'll be there all the time you know and she convinces her not to kill herself I think obviously it's just more complicated if you do have somebody who really does have health issues and really should be, you know, able to make the choice of, of them going on or not. And that's yeah, just a and much I think more complicated also, issue.
0: And I think she also refers to, like, what took her husband and, like, watching her husband decline and just never wanting to be in a position to repeat
2: that. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a much easier way out for the writers to give her, you know, a disease of some kind. Uh, when I read the synopsis for this episode, knowing that it was kind of one that, um stood out from the rest of them. I just assumed that that was the plot because I, I, w- I was shocked when it was just like she just wanted to kill herself because, you know, like, just to end it. and And that's such a much darker and, like, bleaker look. And there's some really, really frank dialogue about life and how, you know, it can be disappointing and, like, not every day is you know, uh, a gift, like, like that, that there are people who really see life as a burden in a lot of ways. And the dialogue in this episode is much better than I'm summing it up right now. But I was just, I was very surprised by how dark they let this episode get just in terms of not saying, like, everything's gonna be okay or, like, <laughs> curing anything. It's basically just saying, like, yeah, you can just stay alive, not because, like, I found a way for you to be happy, but just because, like, like just do it, you know? Like, that, that's it. That's just what you do. Well, and it's, and
0: it's a message of, like, no everything's not going to be okay all you can do is choose whether or not to face it all you can do is find the people who'll be there in your life to face it with you like and i just feel like that's a really like nuanced and beautiful message that most shows of any kind don't really try to sell remember life i don't
6: have much of one i'm not like you you live with friends and family
4: holidays and warmth I hear the silence we'll talk we'll talk all the time you can come over Thanksgiving Christmas every Friday night I may not be there but you could always talk to Rose (laughs) no I want to go Lydia looked so peaceful we're not in this life of peace you're crying no I'm not I don't cry I can see your tears and I can see yours you know what that tells me what You're not as ready to die as you think you are. You still want to live, kid. Some kid.
6: I don't know what to do.
4: That's the point. If you're not sure, you can't change your mind tomorrow. You wanted me to be here for your death. How about letting me be here for your life? Like a friend. Like a best friend.
2: And I thought it was very bold of them to put a lot of that in Sophia's mouth. It wasn't just this friend saying these dark things and then Sophia's like, oh, I'm fine, you know? Uh, But, like, (laughs) she was actually, like, really admitting that she had really, like, dark thoughts sometimes, too. And, I mean, I guess now is a good time to mention just that, like, this show does deal with death a lot. Like, I don't know how many episodes I watched where there was a death of some kind... And I mean, that makes sense on the one hand for people who are getting older. Um, I mean, that is something that they face is, like, casual acquaintances will die, friends will die, and you just, you know, you're sad. But you, it's not like when you're young. It's unexpected. It's like, at this point, they just kind of, like, accept death. And it's just interesting to see a sitcom that is so funny and so... I mean, I, I wouldn't generally call this show dark in general, but that it really does dig into a lot of different things about death and like really treats it differently in a lot of ways and has all kinds of people dying and sometimes it's funny you know and tr- treated for like comedy like with Rose's nemesis and then sometimes it's taken really seriously but the, just that that is like so present in this show was the biggest surprise for me cool
0: Um, so I wanted to talk about another episode and a very different issue, an episode that deals with race. This is from season three, and it's episode 23, and it's an episode called Mixed Blessings.
1: I felt like Mixed Blessings was maybe one of the only episodes I watched where it didn't totally hold up. (laughs) There were moments where I was like, oh, that doesn't... Well, so
0: I'll give the basic plot of this episode. Dorothy's son is engaged to marry a much older woman who is African-American. And upon meeting his fiance's family, the only thing that Dorothy and the family can agree on is not wanting their kids to go through with this wedding.
2: Yeah, there's a really clever setup where uh, the son tells dorothy that she is black and she does react to that like that's not an easy piece of news for her to just accept but she does and then she realizes that the woman is also older she's in her 40s and her son i believe is in her his 20s yeah she's basically twice his age and then when the um the woman's parents or her mother shows up uh she was told that the boy was younger, but not that he was white. So each of them takes a very different issue with this unconventional relationship. And it's not just like a race thing necessarily. It's just like these two people in our like minds don't belong together. Like we need to stop this. And it becomes this very interesting, like first it's a rivalry between these women. And then it becomes, they team up to like break up this it's marriage, which in a way feels like a whole like movie plot, you know? Like, totally.
0: It seems like its own three act movie, yeah. Like in the course of the episode,
1: I felt like Dorothy's initial reaction, particularly to the fiance being black, did not hold up. And I do consider the time and the fact maybe it's just sad, like in the late 80s, this still was a thing that was an issue for people, like interracial marriages. Um, but. It felt weird to me to muddy everything with race and age, because I did agree with Dorothy that she was too old for her son, but I didn't agree with her about the race part. Well, she
0: She does not, she very much does not disagree with the fact that he's marrying a black woman.
1: Yes, she does. No, she
0: doesn't. She's surprised by it. No, she literally,
1: in the kitchen, she says, she's black, and she's twice your age, and I can't condone this marriage. Like she lists that as a reason that they should not get married, and it actually made Dorothy I, not very likable in this episode
2: i yeah, I see it kind of differently i I don't I, I feel like that way takes way her all. a moment to grapple with, but then she accepts it yeah, but it's I feel like it's the age thing that is really the the crux for her
0: and I feel like I don't think it's muddied at all. I think it's as Chris was saying a very clear parallel parallel construction where both quote unquote sides of this are rejecting this coupling because of these very superficial surface level reasons when really what they're just doing is not you know like getting a not giving themselves a chance to actually get to know these people and respect them for the relationship that they have i don't i don't think she's
1: I mean, she explicitly says, I don't want you marrying her because she she's She very black.
0: much, that's an implicit way. She says it. I can understand taking it to imply that. But it is not explicitly saying she doesn't want her son marrying a black man. We will let the listeners decide. We will include the audio.
5: Especially in mid-August. It's incredibly humid and it's hot. Steam. Why the hell are you marrying my son? I'm glad one of us finally brought that up. Dorothy, I don't blame you for having your doubts. I have more than doubts. I look at the two of you, I see so many differences. He is 23, you are 44. He's white, you're black, he is 23. You are 44. You said that already. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just can't seem to get past that one. (laughs) Look, Dorothy, let me tell you something about myself. When I was 18, I was married
3: to the boy next door.
2: All my family and friends, they thought we were the perfect couple.
3: Well, we stayed married for 20 years, but I don't think we were ever in love. It just seemed as though we should be. And I learned
2: something from that. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It's how you feel about each other.
3: Am I
5: making any sense? Making a lot of sense. I was married to a boy next door once myself. That means we have your blessing? I'd like to say yes, but I can't. I I mean, everything you've said is logical, but I'm a mother, and a mother doesn't have to be logical. I'm awfully sorry, I just don't approve. I'm sorry you feel that way.
1: But the only reason that her and the fiance's mom decide to put, you know, everything aside is because the woman is pregnant and they're going to have a grandchild. And it doesn't seem like they get over the age or the race, and they just want to know their grandchild. It just didn't. It it ended and it just put a really bad taste in my mouth for the whole episode.
2: I mean, it's definitely not smoothing things over sitcom style like a lot of shows do. So I kind of appreciated that. I was on kind of, like, high alert during this episode. Like, there were moments... uh, Sophia asks, what color is black people's dandruff? And, like, I just kind of, like... I'm used to Sophia saying outrageous things, but I'm like, I don't know about that one. But I was like, oh, okay, I'll just go with it. And I was constantly kind of, like a little bit worried there's also a scene where um yeah
1: I think where it's Rose Blanche, and Blanche and Rose
0: do face masks this
1: this i can't imagine this episode is in syndication very often because the blackface even though they they're not putting on blackface but they're doing like a beauty re- regime mm-hmm. and and they have brown mud like on their yeah. face and then they walk in and the the fiance's family is there and it's like look liking they're putting blackface but like that wasn't just like oh, no, we're wearing blackface, but we're not, and then cut to commercial, and it's now wiped off. Like, they continued for a very long time wearing it, and the whole time I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> I well, don't like see, watching I,
0: this. I, I was, Chris, like you, I was on high alert. Um, I think... I don't think you can even joke about blackface anymore. Um, I think this is obviously joking about blackface, and it's not, like, implying or endorsing that at all.
1: I know, but just the visual of it was, like... Maybe if they just walked in and then after the commercial break, they've wiped it off. But it just, the fact that it, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And obviously this is me looking present day, but it just was like, oh, I don't like watching this.
2: Yeah, this episode to me felt like it wouldn't be made this way today. Of course not. I don't think anyone
0: involved in it would make it the same way if it were no. today.
2: And so, like, I just kind of came down on the side of, like... There are slightly problematic things about it, but I don't really feel like those are really problems with the show itself. Like, I think the show is actually very thoughtful about the way it treats these characters in this episode and and this issue, much more so than, you know, a lot of other sitcoms at this time. So, I mean, yeah, I I came down on the side of, like, kind of supporting this episode, but from a distance. Like, good for you, but, like, I wouldn't, like, hold this up as, like, Golden Girl's best moment.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's, like we've mentioned, in terms of it being directed toward a very mainstream audience and, like, talking to a white heterosexual, like, mainstream audience, um, I think there are things that aren't even conversations where, like, where progress is totally lacking. Like, the idea of interracial marriage is so much less controversial that anything that even has it as a question will seem more suspect now.
2: So in addition to all these other um, social issues that the show tackled, the show did tackle homelessness as well in a very interesting Thanksgiving episode, uh, season four, episode eight, Brother, Can You Spare a Jacket? This was one of the episodes I saw called out as one of the worst episodes of The Golden Girls, which is why I watched it. Because I wanted to try and see, you know, what this show was like when people did not enjoy it Mm -hmm. and it's a very strange episode they get a lottery ticket like a ten thousand dollar i think prize and then uh blanche puts it in a jacket that accidentally gets given away to an auction that is then bought my by michael jackson (laughs) who like there's like a michael jackson arm (laughs) cameo (laughs) (laughs) they don't do like the full michael jackson it's very weird and then like the michael jackson donates it to a homeless shelter so they all like go into a homeless shelter and like basically pretend to be homeless so that they can go get this lottery ticket and in the end up end up leaving the lottery ticket like as a donation mm. uh but it's a very weird episode cuz it's just it's kind of like not a comedy like it's a very sad episode and the tone of it is just very like dreary and it it's not a good episode, but it's, it's just so different. It's like, it's one of the only episodes I watched of this show where I was like, that's really different. And it didn't feel like different in a bad way. It was just like, well, that was an interesting like experiment for you to make. And I did like that this show went into that issue as well. Like they even took a jab at um, Ronald Reagan in one episode calling him the, the great communicator, but you know, saying that he caused huge issues with mental illness Um, Yep. Yeah, I just I think that the breadth of social issues that were brought up is kind of interesting.
0: The next episode uh, deals with drug issues. Uh, This is season four, episode (laughs) twenty. Yeah, that
2: can't be an accident. Oh no, it's
0: not. the The episode's (laughs) entitled "High Anxiety" as well. So it's oh man,
2: yeah, right on the nose, but a little misleading since it's not about. Marimana.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not about weed. Uh, Rose turns out to have been taking pain pills nonstop for 30 years uh, after a farming injury in her home of St. Olaf, Minnesota. The girls learn about her long-time addiction and help her detox at home. Meanwhile, uh, Sophia has the chance to star in a nationwide commercial for a pizza restaurant and tries to rope Dorothy into the commercial, but Sophia finds that the pizza is too shitty for her to endorse, and Dorothy is too terrible an actress to pull
2: it off. (laughs) I love that Sophia, like, her honor code is that she will not lie about pizza.
5: Like, that's
2: (laughs) where she draws the line.
0: Yeah, it's one of my favorite Sophia lines.
4: Mm, that's a mighty that's a mighty lousy pizza
5: ma you never tasted it before
4: no and I never will again what the hell are you doing sorry si you can't pay me enough to
5: endorse that slime on a shingle ma this is a nationwide commercial there is a lot of money involved here sorry Dorothy
4: there are two things a Cecilia won't do lie about pizza and file a tax return. <laughs> Forget it,
1: <sorry. laughs> I love all of Sophia's, like, just things about Italy and Italianness. And she says something like, I'll never uh, give up on family. Family is the number one thing. And then she said something like, Pawn the guy off on Dorothy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. And it's like, you really do... I really see and hear a lot of the seeds for the kind of comedy in Arrested Development, too. Especially just the extraordinarily cutting barbs that are completely casually dropped. Like, I really do feel like
2: Sophia is a prototype like for the mom in Arrested Development, for Lucille Bluth. Yeah, the interesting thing about Sophia is that they... Like, she'll say, like, really outrageous things and even, like, very dark things about how, like, mob bosses killed someone or something. And then a lot of times they'll be like, Mom, you're making that up. And you just never know. (laughs) It's like, there's, like, I think she probably is making most of it up. But, like, there's also, like, a universe I can imagine, like, badass Sophia, like, you know, like, living through all this shit. Mm -hmm. And, like, now.
1: Prequel, prequel. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It really does feel like Dorothy is related to her, too, because she's also the one that throws out the jabs. Like, I like fill in the blank of, like, something, 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 Rose!
0: Exactly. <laughs> Rose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Every episode, there's, like, a, no, 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 Rose!
2: And sometimes, a lot of times, it's just, shut up, Rose! Yeah, I mean, they all get such good dialogue, but B. Arthur's like
1: her sarcastic yeah it's so withering
0: yes and it was funny because as we mentioned earlier like the actresses were very different from those characters like b arthur was had a lot of darkness to her personality and sadness and stuff and that's definitely in her roles but she was never that kind of rude mean person in real life to
2: other people Yeah, I remember reading something with one of the writers, and they said that after they did the pilot, they just realized that, like, their job was going to be so easy, because they could just have (laughs) B. Arthur look at Rose (laughs) if they didn't have a line, and, like, that would be it. Even just the look is a punchline.
1: It's very—it's not often that I'll watch a sitcom and be like, I wish I could write a spec for this.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Like,
1: like, their characters are so well-defined that I'm like, I feel like I could write a speck of the Golden Girls because it's like Rose is going to do this thing and Blanche is going to do the thing and Dorothy's going to do this thing and, like, everyone is so well-defined that... And and it's just, it's just, like, a, a dialogue factory of, like, exactly. here's this St. Olaf story. And that sounds like it would be too predictable and repetitive, but it really works for seven seasons.
2: Yeah, I mean, they find a different... It, it feels like the Simpsons catch gig, like in a way, that, like, it's just, like, they find a slightly different way to do it every time, and it still has the same elements, but it's in a different order. Like, usually most episodes, like, are very central around the house. Like, that's not inherently interesting, but you never, like, really want them to, like, go on larger adventures. Like, it just kind of works as it is with just these, like, kind of, like, pretty minimal pieces that like we have a few things about Blanche, we have a few things about Rose, and we'll just like jumble them up. And somehow they find like fresh lines every single episode. Even though like the, it's the same joke over and over again, but they just somehow they, they do it in like different enough ways that it like I'm I'm never like uh like predicting the line in my head, mm-hmm. you know?
0: So there are kind of two episodes i want to talk about now both of which take place mostly outside of the house the first one is season six episode 26 called henny penny straight no chaser
1: okay i remembered this one from my from my youth (laughs)
5: ladies ladies why are you in such a hurry stop and smell the flowers
3: we can't the sky is falling
4: run that by me once again
3: (laughs) oh (laughs) A piece of blue sky just fell on her head The wherefore and why
5: are best left unsaid But we have a hunch, and it's appalling That like it or not, the sky is falling Help! Disaster is near Help! We're trembling with fear Help! The outlook is drear We're dreading Armageddon may disrupt our career
0: So, the story of this episode is, it's a musical episode. This one was written by Tom Whedon, who was a co-producer and writer on the show, who came on later. And it is just very different tonally and in terms of the writing and everything. Dorothy is a substitute teacher. That's her job as a character. And she is named to produce the first grader's spring break performance of the musical Henny Penny.
1: Which is Chicken Little.
0: Which Basically. is Chicken Little that they put on every year to encourage the kids to read and get books from the library over their spring break. The B story of it is Blanche finds an obituary for herself in the local newspaper and has to deal with that. Um, all the cool, all the kids in the school play come down with chicken pox, so the Golden Girls have to take over in the lead roles of this play, Henny Penny, and Rose plays Henny Penny, the clueless idiot bird. Part of the insult of it to Blanche is that they list her age as 65 and she's mortally offended.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I kind of love this episode because their performances as these, as this poultry or fowl. are
0: foul. <laughs> like, the foul performance.
1: It's just so funny watching these actresses at work. Like, even just playing a chicken. It's so funny. The way they're walking, they, they each have their own little, like, walk, and it's just so funny to watch them.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, like, watching it this time especially, I really, I felt like, again, like Chris was saying, like, it. I think the show really fires on all cylinders best when they're at home, or, or when they're on that kind of deck set that had a lot of purposes throughout the show, um... I thought it being on the theater on the on the stage ended up making it look very stagey, uh, and the uh, multi camera style of filming it like didn't really do it any favors. I felt like that that was definitely the kind of sequence that filmed in the style of shows today, and like the one camera sitcom style would just play so
2: much better now. Yeah, definitely. Like, if it's shot like more of a musical, exactly,
0: exactly. I thought it. Yeah, I thought it. It felt it felt tonally like it didn't quite fully land as well as it should have. Because I do agree, Becky, that they're they just totally throw themselves into those performances, and I love how you can tell that they're performing it for like a first grade audience. Like that's how big they're
2: playing it. Their costumes are funny. I, I I think that's the extent to that I really like this episode.
1: Like, their costumes are so perfect for who they are. Like, yes. Blanche is the goose, and she's got, like... Just yes. Everything about them acting is so funny.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're good. They do really a really good job. I just don't think the story is there, because, like, we spend way too much time, like, in this musical, and there's not enough, like, character comedy... In it to like it's basically just watching this musical. It really reminded me of I Love Lucy because in I Love Lucy they do a lot of stage performances and there are episodes of that where they like do it for too long or even the entire episode and it's it gets a little tiresome and I kind of felt that way here is that it feels like a kind of a lazy way to do an episode and I believe the only reason that this episode exists is because Tom Whedon liked writing musicals and wanted (laughs) to do one and that
0: was the reason I forget
2: (laughs) I think it might have been Mark Cherry but maybe someone else who kind of said like Yeah, I didn't like that episode. It was March. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, in that
0: same interview. This also has one of my very favorite Rose lines of all time, where she talks about living in a building that was burning down with her husband because the rent was so cheap. (laughs) It's just, it's one of my very favorites. I remember that line. It
6: was funny. Oh, nobody's ever gonna even see it. Everybody's gonna still think I'm 68. And dead. Why does she keep forgetting dead? (laughs) This is horrible. This big daddy used to say, I'm feeling lower than the rent on a burning building.
3: That's funny, I used to live in a burning building. And it was cheap. Miss Charlie's in my first house. We'll scoff if you must, but it was warm and toasty. I'll never forget Charlie throwing me over his shoulder and dashing across the threshold. Oh, it was a beautiful place. Three bedrooms, two baths, then two bedrooms, one bath. Eventually, we outgrew the place.
0: So then the other kind of episode that took place mostly outside of the house was season seven, episode two, The Case of the Libertine Bell. In this episode, the, girl, the girls go on a murder mystery weekend that Blanche books uh, for her boss, Kendall Nesbitt, uh, because Blanche is competing for a promotion with a co-worker and wants to impress the boss by going on this murder mystery weekend. Dorothy, who is a complete fanatic of detective novels, has a complete star turn in this episode because she's basically a master detective from the moment she steps into this role-playing scenario. And Rose also thinks she's a sleuth too, which is kind of perfect because Rose notices small details but always misses the bigger picture. Things take a turn when Kendall, the boss, is supposedly, quote-unquote, really stabbed to death in Blanche's bedroom, no less, and so it unfolds as a, quote-unquote, real murder mystery investigation. And Blanche's co-worker tries to frame her for this apparent murder, but Dorothy solves the case and proves the framing. And so uh, Blanche gets the job, and her boss comes back and is totally both unharmed and very impressed with this thing that she's set up.
1: I didn't get to watch this episode, but just hearing you talk about it, it makes me want to just do an escape room with the Golden Girls. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, and after this episode, I totally would. I liked this episode and highlighted it because it was such a great Dorothy performance. And there are a lot of these other, especially like the kind of issues episodes where Dorothy doesn't play quite as much of a leading role, but in this, I really felt like she was the star.
1: That tramp murdered my lover.
5: I know Blanche Devereaux, Lieutenant, and this tramp is incapable of committing murder. Okay, we got a motive, we got a weapon, and we got one suspect with no alibi. Blanche Devereaux, I'm charging you with murder. You have the right to... Wait, Wait, wait. Why would she bring a steak knife to what she thought was a romantic liaison? It could have been for anything. I'm not familiar with her sexual proclivities.
4: What are you, a rookie?
5: You still haven't answered the question of how somebody else got into the room. What if there was a knock at the door? Nesbitt might have assumed that it was the waiter with the champagne. That is speculation. But one more point. The hotel security chief cordoned off the room. So the only people who saw the room after the murder, other than you and your staff, were the waiter, the security chief, and the four of us.
2: I really didn't like this episode at all. This is one of two episodes in particular that I would say is bad. Okay, one is like notoriously bad. It's called Empty Nests, and it is basically a spin off pilot for the show Empty Nests, right. Um
1: Which I used to watch,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I R- did too. Like, like Rita Moreno just takes over this episode, and there's entire scenes with just her and her husband, like, Weird. and no Golden Girls. It's, I mean, it's just really poorly.
0: Thankfully, I've no- I don't think I've ever seen that one. Yeah,
2: long. I mean, I sought that one out just to like kind of watch the worst, and that was definitely the worst. This one I really didn't like just because it felt like a fan fiction episode to me. Like, I just didn't believe these characters. Like, you have to take, like, liberties with a a sitcom. But, like, I was just like, since when is Dorothy, like, super into mysteries? Like, that's never been a thing before. And just, like, the fact that they thought there, there was a real murder or it's played like there was a real murder just, like, seemed preposterous to me and just, like, really outside of the tone of this show.
0: Fair enough disagreement. (laughs) So the last one I wanted to talk about was the finale two-part episode. One Flew Out of the Cuckoo's Nest. In this episode, Blanche's uncle, played by Leslie Nielsen, comes to town and...
1: She has a one-night stand she wants to get to, and so she just wants somebody to go out with him and keep him occupied. So uh, he goes out with Dorothy, and like they both are like, oh, we both were kind of like suckered into this... But then they decide, oh, let's get back at Blanche by saying we're going to get married. And then they do this like fake engagement. But then they end up actually liking each other. And it doesn't take very long for them to actually become a couple. And then he asks uh, to marry her. And she says yes.
5: Look, Lucas, no offense, but uh, hardware doesn't sound terribly romantic. So when you come by tomorrow, why don't you tell Blanche that you took me to hear the Emerson String Quartet? I love it. Do you think they might buy that afterwards? We frolicked in the ocean.: Oh gosh, I haven't frolicked since ah well, since, since the day I dropped my mother off at Shady Pines <laughs> Coincidentally, that was the last time I did a cartwheel. <clears throat> it was a good day.) Of course, we could tell them that we uh, went up to Lovers' Lane and uh, that we necked. Next- Oh, well, then I'd, I'd have to smear my lipstick, you know, for effect. Here, let me.
2: Despite all their hesitations, they say yes and take the plunge. Despite the fact that he's Leslie Nielsen, which is really hard to take seriously as a romantic lead.
1: I disagree. I thought he was a very charming guest I thought star. Was-
2: charming and Chris Nielsen facts.
0: <laughs> Leslie Nielsen actually got his start as a complete leading man, straight man, like stone faced, no comedy. He was on only dramas. I just can't
2: see him as anything but, like, I Mr. Totally. Magoo and other various <laughs> well, ridiculous people. Well, he
1: people. was playing a comedic role in this, so I don't... You know, he was being silly at dinner.
2: So. I thought
0: eventually they had real chemistry, yeah. you know?
2: I did, too. I just was like, oh, like, after seven years, like, you run off with Leslie Nielsen. That's yeah. the end of the show.
1: I thought that he was... I liked him. I don't know why you don't, like... You're not taking him seriously as, like, him. a handsome older man.
0: See, I liked him and I took his character seriously, but I also did think it was a rather abrupt ending to the show.
4: Well, well, yeah.
3: I guess this is it, right? Listen, Dorothy, you don't have to say anything. I mean, what can you say about seven years of fights and laughter, secrets,
5: cheesecake? <laughs> yeah. Just that uh, it's been very, um, well, it's been an experience that I'll always keep very close to my heart. And that these are memories that I'll wrap myself in when the world gets cold and I forget that there are people who are warm and loving and.
3: We love you too. <laughs>
0: the wrap-up of the episode is literally just dorothy saying goodbye and you know like she keeps coming back for more and more hugs and it was it that was fun and really sad and i'm glad that this finale didn't take for instance the seinfeld route (laughs) Uh, you know, like, there are many worse turns it could have taken. Yes. Um, but I
2: thought that it was kind of an unsatisfying ending to the show. Yeah, the episodes right before this, uh, it's another two-parter called Home Again Rose, in which Rose, it actually really feels like she could die, which is rare from this. And to me, that kind of felt like the real season finale, and then this was kind of like a bonus one. Like, I... I appreciated that episode, I think, a little bit more. I mean, it's a little bit bizarre because they, like, become frozen heads based on, like, Rose's fantasy of, you know, living forever and...
0: Cryogenically freezing.
2: Yeah. But, um, I mean, that at least... That had some real emotion to it. This did at the end, but... I think what really didn't work about this was the reappearance of Stan, and he, like... Yes.
1: Well, that felt like closure after apparently he has been pursuing Dorothy throughout the show, uh-huh. and it felt like closure, and kind of like a twist, like, oh, he's gonna kidnap her or something, like, stop her from getting married because he's he keeps wanting her back, but now it's like, no, I'm I'm happy for you.
0: The I, twist I, part of it was what didn't work for me.
2: I actively avoided all episodes dealing with Stan because I... I just was pretty sure I wouldn't like them and maybe I would. I'm sure that there's good stuff in there, but like I really didn't want this kind of like Dorothy hung up on a man, which is what the plot synopsis kind of, um, of these episodes said a lot. And so like, I was just, I was just like, I don't care about you. Like, like it, it was dealt as too much of like the climax of everything and i was like i don't i don't care about this like get me back to the girls get me like yeah. the, the chemistry that i love about this show and another weird thing about this episode is that it goes into their thoughts and i really did not enjoy that like change of perspective where, wasn't
1: that just for a moment at the wedding yeah but it's just more
2: with just sophia really no,
1: no it was all of them
2: yeah i like the sophia ones but
1: i didn't care cuz it was just a moment you know it was just, just a funny it just didn't feel
2: moment. like this show like it it felt like they didn't know quite what to do with this episode to me. Yeah, I mostly agree. Which is probably true, because I, the reason that the show wrapped up at this point was because B. Arthur did not want to do the show anymore. And, and that finale
0: episode where Dorothy leaves got about 17.5 million viewers, um, which was up quite a bit from their ratings at the time, but also didn't win the evening in the face of Roseanne and Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, but then came a spinoff series that I really think the finale is intended to kind of start setting up, uh, the, the spinoff series moved from NBC to CBS. It was called the golden palace and it aired on CBS from September 18th, 1992 to May 14th, 1993 with reruns airing until 1990, uh, August of 1993. Uh, while not as popular as its predecessor, the series produced a total of 24 half-hour episodes spanning one season, uh, and that's why they actually went to CBS, because CBS promised them a whole season order. Uh, CBS canceled the program in 1993. B Arthur was not part of the cast, but she guest-starred for two episodes. Don Cheadle and Cheech Marin were series regular cast members on this show, uh, and I will never, ever watch it.
2: Mm. i watched about two minutes of this yeah even, that happened to also include jack black so it was very <laughs> jarring with like all of these other actors yeah i mean it just doesn't work it's like it, the magic is just gone is
1: it the golden girls just without dorothy or is the location changed so they, they, or? So they
2: own a hotel
1: Oh, okay. Well, it's yeah, yeah. all different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not just like them in the home. It's
2: it just feels different. Like it's it's like
1: becomes a workplace comedy then. Yeah. Yes. It's like this and there were a lot of those elements.
2: Starts in the house because they're moving out, and so it's like everything looks the same, and it's the same three women. So you'd think a scene with just the three of them would work, but something about it is just like gone.
1: Were the writers different?
2: No, no. It was mostly the same
0: writers, wow. but they all knew there was something missing. Mark Cherry from that same interview said. The truth of the matter is that, in any TV show, there's a recipe that happens, and with B leaving, the chemistry was gone. Susan Harris gave it a shot, but ultimately, I don't think it worked. In retrospect, it might have been better to let B's character get married and then replace her rather than come up with a whole new show. But they gave it a shot, and it didn't work.
1: She's the ginger spice of, uh, <laughs> of Golden
0: Girls. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for being a friend. <laughs> so, after the Golden Girls, the legacy of the show and the talent... Golden Girls itself has found a huge and adoring audience in the gay community. Specifically to the gay community, I first learned about the Golden Girls in the context of starting to learn about gay culture and the kinds of things that gay folks were into and the kinds of movies or TV shows that were... Uh, very accepting like I would do like reading on the internet about this kind of stuff so this was one of the first pieces of pop culture that I came to like when I was learning about being gay Um, and I believe Becky that one of your friends sent in an audio clip talking about his fandom of the Golden Girls and his relating to it
1: yeah my friend Matt who is my oldest friend um, not he's not a Golden Girl (laughs) (laughs) I have literally known him since we were little kids like almost toddlers when i think of the golden girls i think of matt when i was a reporter for e and i met betty white on the red carpet i literally had her record an audio message for matt (laughs) to say hello um uh matt had like golden girls memorabilia in his room um He recently got married and the uh, drag queen that he had emceeing the event saying thank you for being a friend and the specialty cocktails were named after the four women and his like thank you cards said thank you for being a friend. Like it's a real thing. (laughs) Um, Did
2: did you get him the biggest gift? though? Because we all know that that's the most important thing. (laughs)
1: I got B. Arthur to show up. That's and what did would be the amazing. card say?
2: <laughs> she is the tallest.
1: Matt lives in New York, and um, he couldn't be the guest. Otherwise, he would 100% have been our guest. Um, so I called him, and we talked for a while. And I don't have, like, 20 minutes of conversation taped. But he did talk. It was interesting, because I've known that he's loved the Golden Girls, more than I think anyone does his whole life, but I never actually asked him point blank, why do you love the Golden Girls? And a lot of it it has, you know, a personal connection. He said that he grew up watching it with his dad and his brother, not his mom, but his dad and his brother, um, and that his uh, his dad loved the show, and it kind of drew him closer to realizing his dad's sense of humor and kind of adopting that himself and that he was also very very close to three of his grandmothers and that also reminded him of his relationship with his grandmothers but um i thought this was really interesting what he said
7: the show is so brilliant at kind of creating these beautiful relationships um with love and joy the idea of this found family, was really important for me. Uh, this idea, which I think is true in a lot of the, the gay community, this idea that you can choose the people that you call family. And here were these four women that had found each other through different circumstances and through different lived experiences, but they somehow found each other and were able to relate to each other through love and humor, and I that really registered with me. I think this idea of older, established, funny women coming together, finding each other in this time in their lives when I guess it's it's more typical to be alone uh, and sad and to only have memories. They were able to kind of create this new life for themselves. That I, it definitely it just definitely registered and it was something that I looked forward to establishing similar relationships.
1: Yeah. And I thought that was a perspective that as a straight woman and a little girl watching this, I just never, you know, thought of that It it is kind of about found family. And I think it really is interesting that Rose is from the Midwest and Blanche is from the South and, um, uh, Sophia is from Italy, like Sicily, and uh Dorothy has that Italian heritage and it brings all these people from different backgrounds together and i I can see why maybe gay men um might be very drawn to something like that
2: absolutely, yeah, yeah, for me, the show i mean I never thought about any of that either and to me like my appreciation of the show doesn't really have anything to do with anything gay other than like I appreciate the fact that they you know said some interesting things about those issues in the 80s and 90s when that wasn't being done very often and like the show was way more ahead of its time on those issues than Fresh Prince and Seinfeld and even kind of Ellen in a way like granted it's very different when you're doing it with a main character but like I felt like this show really did not just once, but, like, several times, really interesting things. But for me, yeah, like, I... What I appreciate about this show is that it does show that you can have a vibrant life, and even... It's really kind of counter to the Prince Charming narrative where you, like, ride off into the sunset, and, like, that's the end of so many stories. So to see a story about people, four people who had that moment and lived lives, you know, as mothers and and wives... And then there's still more, you know, that's, that's very rare. I do kind of wish that like one of them, like probably Blanche had been single the whole time and didn't have a family. And there was just like a kind of like, it's also okay to have not done that and to be like a wanton slut your entire life if you want to be. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I really gravitated toward that sense that like there's no set ending. Like, you settling down and having a family is not just... And then there's no more story to tell. Exactly. So as we mentioned, the story continued
0: for the writers who were brought up through the writing room of the Golden Girls. There was Mitch Hurwitz, who, as I said, created Arrested Development, Mark Cherry, who created Desperate Housewives, and Christopher Lloyd, who uh, with Stephen Levitan created the show Modern Family. Um, And it's just crazy to me that Just three writers out of a show like this created pretty big institutions of modern comedy in the 2000s and the 2010s. And then creator Susan Harris went on to create, obviously, Golden Palace. And she later created the show's Nurses, Empty Nest, and The Secret Lives of Men. Each of the Golden Girls became even more of a comedy institution in America, and most of them played several more roles after this, but none that were quite as iconic as
2: this show. Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, I, it's hard to talk about three more influential comedies than Desperate Housewives, Modern Family, and Arrested Development. Like, they're very, very different, but they're they're they made each of them a huge impact.
0: Absolutely. Unfortunately, all of the girls are no longer with us, except for Betty White. Uh, And Betty White is now a household celebrity in a... Well, I mean, Betty White was a nationwide celebrity before the show even began, but now she is a celebrity for being herself. (laughs) And she has remained that way, like, ever since this show. Um, I think
1: after the show, she was on Lake Placid...
0: She's had roles. Right? She's had <laughs> How roles, dare you, in, Seriously. No,
1: there's more. I was going to say more. You're, like, you're
0: drowning her in the sunset, I'm just saying, Becky. It's not
1: like she was in the Golden Girls, and then she's just writing on her name like she uh, was in that movie. She and she had like this dirty grandma thing, which was very right. opposite of Rose. No, well, she's
2: actually known for being a workhorse. Like she's still at it. Like, yes, she is. She works
0: nonstop, I, and she's nine bajillion years old.
1: I think she was emmy nominated or maybe one for hosting snl a few years ago
0: i think that's also yeah It's
1: one of the most phenomenal episodes honestly i recommend you watch it yeah she's still absolutely hilarious and like smart as a whip Hot in Cleveland, she was the star of that show. She had Betty White's Off Her Rockers. Like, she literally, like, is still working.
0: And I know people who photographed her, like, done, like, a full-day photo session at her house with her, and she is, like, the sweetest and best and funniest, and she's exactly who you want her to be.
1: How old is she, 91?
2: 96. 96!
1: 96 years old!
2: Oh, Betty. Uh, Yeah, I wanted to actually mention this earlier, but um, I found her... Kind of foxy in the <laughs> early episodes Like I guess I'm used to Betty White now Who is a nice looking lady For a woman of her age But not someone I'm sexually attracted to
1: but, You're the one saying that people wouldn't be Like hot and bothered by the Golden Girls And you were
0: <laughs>
2: A little bit like she was just
1: kind of foxy
2: Betty know. White
0: made you hot in Cleveland I'm yeah. <laughs> admit it It's true it's a little true Betty you can get it <laughs> Just know that
1: Chris is single. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention is that the Golden Girls is now streaming in its entirety through Hulu.
1: What? Why didn't you show me that?
0: Yes. Why didn't you check on Hulu? Why didn't you
1: told me it was streaming on Hulu. Because I
0: didn't think to look it up until what? just before the episode.
1: What? I was about to say, why isn't this streaming anywhere?
0: I, in doing research like yesterday, oh I read God. that it was on Hulu.
2: No, I knew it was on Hulu, but
1: <laughs> don't say anything. Well,
2: I got the DVDs from the library because, like, I tried <laughs> watching it on Hulu. Why and... did you go through the-
0: library
2: because like i couldn't deal with the commercials like i was going to be watching so many episodes of this and like i tried watching one and it had the commercials i was like no it's so much easier for me to just walk to the library get these dvds that's true them all
0: it's a lot of waiting even just watching a 22 minute show online when you're streaming with the commercials if you don't if you don't spring for the commercial free plan i totally understand renting the dvds from your local library
2: it's becky who (laughs) does not spring for the commercial (laughs) free plan
0: um, but either way, The Golden Girls is available to stream and to watch on home devices of all sorts. And I thoroughly, and I think we would all recommend that you do so, because it is, as Becky
2: said, a popcornish popcornish good time.
1: Yeah, binge away.
2: Binge away. Yeah, it, even the bad episodes have something in there. Like, you really can't go wrong just putting it on. And, like, we talked a lot about a lot of issue, like issue episodes, but there's plenty of just, like... Old old lady hijinks.
0: <laughs> and that's all the old lady hijinks we have time for in this
2: episode of When We Were Young. On the next episode... Our next episode will be discussing three teen comedies from 1999, rom-com set at the prom. Prom rom-coms, or prom-coms, if you will. That would be She's All That, 10 Things I Hate About You, and Never Been Kissed.
0: So put your hair up and get your glasses on in preparation for that transformation. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this trip with us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and review us with five stars or more. You can suggest episodes on all of our social media channels and give us feedback of what you would like to hear on the podcast. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. And I'm a
2: pal and a confidant. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Mr. Sandman, bring yes? me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him the word that I'm not a rover. And tell him that his wholesome nights <laughs> are over. Mr. Sandman, I'm alone.
4: Oh, you guys really
5: stink. <laughs> We were just singing the baby to sleep. It was
4: waking me up.